RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your internet privacy by visiting expressvpn.com slash missionlog, and you can get three extra months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash missionlog to protect your data. This episode is also brought to you by Theragun. Try the Theragun Gen 4 for 30 days, starting at only $199 at theragun.com slash missionlog. This episode is also brought to you by Eagle Moss Hero Collector and the brand new The Orville Official Ships Collection. The first ships in the collection, including the Orville itself, are available now at herocollector.com slash Orville. Use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase with free shipping. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 379, Ferengi Love Songs. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take an in-depth look at each and every episode of Star Trek for the morals, meanings, and boogie contained within. Uh, hang on. So, Norm, I, th- those aren't the three M's of Mission Log. You know, I'm sorry, John, you're right. Um, um, let, me, let me redo that line uh, one second. So... We take an in-depth look at the moogie meanings and messages contained within. You just wanted to say moogie, didn't you? Of course I do. (laughs) Of course I do. How can you blame me? (laughs) Anyway, we will discuss Ferengi love songs in a moment. But first, here's how you can stay in touch with us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'd be grateful. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Hey, we'll get to trivia here in just a second, but first a quick word from our sponsors, Eagle Moss Hero Collector and the Orville Official Ships Collection. I know it's so weird. It's a Star Trek podcast, but we're talking about the Orville. It's like you got your peanut butter and my chocolate. It it just makes no sense, but it does. It makes total sense because... This collection is the collection designed in partnership with and based on Seth MacFarlane's hit science fiction comedy drama. It's the ships of the brand new The Orville Official Ships Collection, available only from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. Now, you know it's coming. The first ships in the collection, you got your Planetary Union ship, the USS Orville, and its shuttle. They're available right now directly from the Eagle Moss shop at $29.95 each with free shipping. There's even an oversized XL edition, which is very sweet, of the Orville, available for only $74.95. No matter what you order, use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. 
And the great thing about working with, say, the resources you have today, John, when it comes to recreating these in exacting detail is that they are they are high-res files for these ships so that you can get these incredibly careful studies that Eagle Moss gets on these models from the files or from studying uh, stills from the series. And these ships, the, the detail on these ships are, of course, uh, incorporated and represented in the die-cast metal and the high-quality ABS materials and then hand-painted for studying accuracy. And it's not like you're looking at the old stills from, say, like TOS to get the colors <laughs> right, right, you know, when yeah. the film stock changed. You're getting high-res, high-digital, I do believe, 4K yeah. studies it's of these ships. The real deal, um, yeah. Each ship also comes with a display base plus a collector's magazine filled with concept art, interviews, and behind-the-scenes details of the Orville TV series. And then additional ships are slated to join the collection soon. For my taste, hopefully we will get the Mocklin ships, that's Bortus's race, then we will get the Kalons, and obviously the Krill, the enemies of the Orville universe. Fingers crossed. So, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, let's just see on our list who's naughty and who's nice <laughs> for those. <laughs> so you can stay on top of the whole thing and get all the details, including comprehensive views of each ship and ordering information, all at herocollector.com slash Orville. And don't forget, use our code MISSION10. That's spelled out M-I-S-S-I-O-N-1-0, MISSION10, at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. And now before we play the soothing songs of Ferengi love music. Here's John Champion. Whoa. Can you dig with <laughs> well, this thank week's you trivia? for that. <laughs> All right, trivia for Ferengi love songs. This episode was written by Iris Bear and Hans Beimler. Iris' vision for the episode was along the lines of a screwball comedy. Think 1930s, Howard Hawks. Just keep that in mind while we go through it and See where we land. Now, this episode had a bit of a title name game. Ira had pitched it as how Quark acquired his groove back, but then it was shot and mostly written and promoted as of love and profit. And the final name change didn't come until just a few weeks before air date. So a few listings at the time actually had the wrong title uh, as opposed to what was actually shown on screen and, and what we know now as Ferengi love songs. It was directed by René Aubergenois, and for a guy who didn't really love directing, here he is with his sixth installment of DS9. He will direct one in each subsequent season. Action figures, Norm, action figures. We get the Marauder Mo action figures. They were actually, uh, what we saw on screen, they were Spawn Super Patriot action figures that were customized by the props department. There were more than what we saw, though. So John Eves did sketch and named them. You had Slug the Loser, Brock the Big Spender, and Lorg Latinum. And uh, John's drawings are in uh, Terry's book, The uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine Companion. So do check that out. There is a fun little detail on set. And Norman, you pointed this out a few weeks ago. Ever since Body Parts... Quark has had the legal notices from the FCA on the wall next to the door at his bar. Now, of course, he's still doing business anyway, regardless of the notice. But at last, he has his license back at the end of this episode. So we will see those notices gone in the next episode. Now, let's move along to guest stars. We welcome back Tiny Ron. Of course, he with the ironic name being seven feet tall. 
That was a union thing, since another actor was already registered under his real name, Ronald Taylor. You've seen him before here as Mehardu, and uh, we will see him again on Voyager in a different role. Hamilton Camp appears here briefly as the Ferengi Lek, paying tribute to Zek. Hamilton got his start as a folk singer and then switched to acting, where he racked up just a huge number of credits on screen and as a voice actor, really taking off starting in the 60s. He had an early success uh, recurring role on the Richard Benjamin Paula Prentice comedy He and She, and later on you'll find his voice just about everywhere from Smurfs to Darkwing Duck to the We will catch him one more time here as Lek and then once more in Voyager. Jeffrey Combs. Uh, Look, nothing will abate my admiration for Jeffrey Combs, and this is what I really love seeing, which is when his multiple characters overlap from episode to episode. Brunt is so distinct from Weyoun that even if we just saw one, there he is completely embodying the other. Wallace Shawn is back playing Grand Nagus Zek for the fourth time. We've mentioned Wally's great body of work before and how he is probably best known for The Princess Bride, but of course his career features so much more like My Dinner with Andre, voice work for Pixar, and just so much more. We'll have him back as Zek three more times. Finally, when we first met Quark and Rom's mother, Ishka, okay, all right, we, we will call her Moogie, Norman. <laughs> um, Moogie. <there> you go. <laughs> she was played by SCTV comedian Andrea Martin. And at the time, we mentioned that Andrea found it very difficult to work under the prosthetic appliances necessary to transform her into a Ferengi. And this time around, the role actually goes to another comedic actress, Cecily Adams. Daughter of Get Smart star Don Adams, Cecily began making a name for herself as an actor in the 80s with TV appearances, but at almost the same time, she was working as a casting director. So her run on DS9, which will total five episodes, marks her last on-screen acting roles, But by that time, she was casting major shows like Third Rock from the Sun and that 70s show. All the while, she was also an acting coach and a live theater performer, getting her comedy training at Groundlings. Tragically, Cecily passed away from lung cancer at the age of 46 in 2004. Everybody quiet down. I think Norman's about to sing us some Ferengi love songs. Prologue. It's been a rough few days for Quark. His bar is currently infested with voles, which has forced him to reflect on his life. And more to the point, his profit losses, ever since Brunt and the FCA revoked his business license nearly a year ago. Not to worry, though, because Rom has exciting news to cheer up his big brother Quark, who is quietly moping in his quarters. For starters, Rom tells Quark that he and Lita are to be engaged, which Quark responds, oh, I wish I was dead. But more importantly, both Lita and Rom encourage Quark to talk to someone, someone who Rom says will always accept you unconditionally. And Quark does just that as he races off to Franganar, and surprise, he drops in on Ishka, his mother, his Moogie. Act 1. In the replimat, Rom is sporting a new Bajoran earring while reciting Bajoran prophecies to Chief O'Brien and Dax. 
Rom explains that he's learning and embracing Bajoran customs to make Lita happy. To which both Dax and the chief respond in kind and compliment Rom, stating that he's the least Ferengi-like Ferengi they have ever met. And even though it was indeed a compliment, it did start Rom thinking. Back in Ishka's on Ferenginar, Cork has confessed all of his woes to his Mugi, especially losing his business license to Brunt in the FCA. But Ishka, however concerned, reminds Quark that they didn't part on the best of terms, especially since she's still violating Ferengi culture by wearing clothes and even worse, making profits. Putting all of those aside, she agrees to let Quark stay in his old room, and when Quark finally settles in, he is startled by Grand Nagus Zek, in my hardu, hiding in his closet. Wait, what? What is the Grand Nagus doing hiding in Wark's closet? It turns out that Quark really should have called Mugi first because Zek isn't there for Quark. He's there for Ishka. And not because she's in trouble. It's because Zeki, um, I mean the Grand Nagus Zek, and Ishka are in love. Act 2. It turns out that Ishka and Grand Nagus Zek met during an annual Tongo tournament. She gave Zeki a few pointers and helped him turn around his losing strategies to win the tournament for the 27th year in a row and have been seeing each other ever since, privately, of course. Never one to miss an advantageous beat, especially to exploit a family member for personal gain, Quark sees this opportunity to get into the Nagus's good graces and get back the license to his bar. Speaking of which, back at Quark's, Chief O'Brien and his team appear to have rid Quark's bar of the vol infestation. Rom then asks the chief to take a longer-than-usual lunch break so that Lita can sign his Waiver of Property and Profit, or WPP for short, or Ferengi prenup for even shorter. Chief O'Brien warns Rom that forcing Lita to sign the WPP is a huge mistake, and the chief was right, as later in Rom's quarters, Lita is appalled that Rom would even propose this contract to her. And unless you are Ferengi, nothing sours an engagement like fighting over money and property, so Rom takes off his Bajoran earring and declares that the marriage is off. As dinner is winding down at Ishka's, Quark tries to massage his way into the Nagus's good graces with a deluge of compliments and umlocks to the Nagus's ego. But Zek sees right through Quark's facade and refuses to intervene on Quark's behalf as he broke the most revered of all Ferengi cultural laws— breaking a contract with another Ferengi. Zek's decision is final, and only the FCA can give Quark what he wants. Later in his room, Quark's answer to his problem literally materializes in his closet, in the form of, and in his own short greeting, Brunt, FCA. Act 3. Brunt knows full well of the Nagus' relationship with Iska, and has appeared before Quark to offer him a deal break up their disgusting romance, but quietly and privately to spare the Nagus any scorn of public opinion. In return, Brunt will issue Quark a brand new business license. Deal! When Quark appears later before the Nagus, he sets his scheme in motion. First, to convince the Nagus that Ishka is manipulating him in order to use his power to establish female Ferengi independence, which disturbs Zek to no end. With the Nagus reeling from Quark's lies about Ishka, Quark turns his sights on his own Mugi, manipulating her to do the one thing that would upset the Nagus, to ask him to use his influence to get Quark's business license back from Brunt and the FCA. 
Meanwhile, on DS9, it seems that Rom and Lita are in the throes of their recent breakup as Captain Sisko finds Rom working in his engineering duties and sobbing what he describes as tears of joy. Above them, Major Kira and a very distraught Lita are having a similar conversation as Kira tries to show Lita the error of her feelings as well. But the tears aren't just flowing on Deep Space Nine. Back at Ishka's, it appears that Quark's plan has worked as he returns home to find his Moogie crying because Zeki has left her and that their breakup will be a disaster for everyone. But that subtle warning falls on deaf lobes and Quark immediately contacts Brunt to honor their contract for Wark's new business license. Act 4. With his new business license in tow, Quark is ready to head back to his fully licensed bar on Deep Space Nine. However, the Nagus wants to see him immediately. When Quark arrives at the Tower of Commerce, Zek is so appreciative of what he's done, warning him about Ishka, that he offers Quark the role of first clerk. But soon after, Quark notices that all is not well with the Nagus's memory. Stopping by Rom's to retrieve a tool, Chief O'Brien sees Rom contemplating over two very small stacks of gold-pressed latinum, more to the point, the total profit of Rom's career. Rom explains to the chief that one of the piles is to bribe Lita to sign the WPP, but those profits would end up being Rom's anyway, so what's the point? Rom admits that he wants Lita back, and later, at her snack stand on the promenade, he proves how much he loves her by telling her he has given away all of his money to the Bajoran War Orphans Fund. No money, no need to sign the WPP. Well done, Cupid O'Brien. Back at Ishka's, Quark comes to the realization that his Moogie is the one who has been able to keep Zek's memory and overall happiness stable and secure, which resulted in keeping the Ferengi markets profitable and stable all this time they were together. But Quark ruined all of that and jeopardized the Ferengi economy by listening to Brunt in the first place, who, all the while, has been playing at a much longer con. Act 5. Upholding the tradition of being the villain, Brunt visits Quark at the Tower of Commerce to monologue about his overarching plot to ultimately expose Zek's failing memory so that he could become the new Nagus with the full support of the FCA behind him. Back at Ishka's, Quark confesses that living amongst humans for so long, he may have acquired a, a, um, con, a, a conscience and had to undo the wrongs that his dealings with Brunt have caused Moogie, Zek, and most importantly, to make sure that Brunt doesn't get the chance to wield the power of the Ferengi economy. After thwarting Brunt's test to try and discredit Zek's memory, both the Nagus and Quark agree that the Vulcans can help Zek's memory so that he can remain Nagus for far longer than Brunt would like. In appreciation, Zek still wants Quark to remain on as, as first clerk, but Quark defers the honor to another, the true financial advisor behind the scenes this whole time. A hooded figure appears and is revealed to be Ishka, who Quark claims is the best financial advisor ever to serve a Nagus, and also his Moogie. With all things settled, Quark is finally packing his bags for his trip back to D-Space-9 as Moogie comes in and reunites him with his most prized childhood possessions, his Marauder Mo action figures, which Moogie reminds him he could have fetched for more profit if they were in mint condition in the original packaging. As she says her goodbyes, Brunt materializes in Quark's closet one last time and in no certain terms reminds Quark that he will keep a wary eye out for him, waiting for him to fail. But until then, and after Brunt leaves, Quark enjoys one last indulgent. A little pow 
bang, and pew-pew time with his action figures. The end. Man, how bad are Cardassian voles? Because it's not like you just set a trap. It's like you have to have armed Starfleet guards shooting them all over the station. You got to close down Quark's bar. I mean, this is they're they're bad. They're very bad. Since I've never seen this episode before and I didn't know what was going on, I thought like some kind of like hollow laser tag game I, I, went I did awry. Too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I mean. Dax did say that they were kind of like, you know, not as cute version of Tribbles. So why not just ask the Klingons and say, hey, how'd you guys get rid of the Tribbles and the great Klingon hunt? Yeah, good Singing point. songs and all that. Uh, you know, I, I like it when, when alien races create their own, or to be more specific, when writers create certain cultural touchstones for alien races. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the hug between Mugi or Ishka and mm-hmm. Quark just seemed a little too human for my taste. Oh, interesting. And it was really awkward because the way that Armin bent over to hug her, it just looked like, okay, I got to just make sure that my prosthetic head doesn't bump her prosthetic head. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah. Um, because later on... He and Brunt did this really cool contract handshake. Right. I, I really liked that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because it was a cultural touchstone that mm-hmm. we have not yet seen, but they do the human hug, which I thought was weird. Right. No, that's a good point. You know, yeah. So. yeah. Uh, another interesting thing, like, I, I think Ferengi design is really interesting. Like, they definitely stick to the same color palettes. Um, like gold, brown, green, kind of rust color. Like they definitely stick with that. And then they really play up the the very, you know, curved surfaces, the, the doors that are a little too short that are all round. And I felt like Quark's room, which we've seen before, but I just, I really paid attention to it this time. It had a very, like a Dr. Seuss feel to it. And this time you went in and it wasn't just the curved door, but did you see the two bookshelves that were like yeah, the they're like shaped? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? They're just they're they're really like leaning into this quite a bit. Well, you know that the neat thing was is I remember when the Frangu were first kind of like uh, advertised. You know when they did um, was it the battle mm-hmm. uh, in in TNG uh, and uh, or I know that there was another one with when they showed the actual laser whips, which were on the action figures. Yes, really yes, cool, that was right. Cool. The laser whips right. were, mm-hmm. but they had the the Ferengi icon, their cultural logo. Yeah. And it had similar shapes to like all of the, basically kind of like the door shapes, you know, those, yeah. um, those ovals or those, those, you know, half archways. Right. I thought that was kind of neat. Um, uh, here was something that was a little weird for me though. The whole pre-chewing of the tube grubs. Oh, so, so is that like, all right, is that a Moogie thing or is that a Ferengi thing or is that a misogyny thing? What What is that all about? You could pick one or you could pick them all, and I think you would be right. I, it's so weird. Like, yeah, the misogyny is just baked into literally everything that happens in every moment that there is a Ferengi woman in the room. No mm. question about it. And then, yeah, the the Moogie thing is like, you know, infantilizing Rom and Quark at every opportunity. For, and then it, 
apparently is just a Ferengi thing too. It's it look, it's disgusting. It's, uh, Ira is having fun just making you disgusted by these things that are part of Ferengi culture. Yeah. No mm. question about it. I do have to say, man, you, you mentioned the uh, the laser whips and the Marauder Mo uh, action figure. I relate to these moments just so much. I, I love that they wrote this in there and they stuck with it and revealed it in the end you had to and uh apparently this was specifically aimed at ira this was something that hans wrote into the <laughs> script because he like me he is a guy who very often doesn't open the toys because he's like well it'll be worth more if you don't open it and i'm i'm trying to fight that you know i get it i understand well i mean yeah. uh we've all seen kind of like earl's backdrops so. yeah right this is a scene that kind of, you know, hits close to home for Earl, I'm sure. Exactly, exactly. Um, let's see, and I, I do like, you know, uh, throwing in funny, specific things for the Ferengi, like Lobkins. I, I have oh, to wonder, I like, I have to wonder if that was an Ira and Hans thing, or was that a Cecily Adams thing? Because it just sounds like something very natural to have happened on set. Lobkins is great. I'll see, the whole thing, like, with them, it was natural unnatural at right. the same time yeah yeah right you're just like i'm not sure like if i like this yeah. or if it just makes my skin crawl <laughs> that that's you sort know? of that, that's the fine line they're always yeah. hitting yeah now if you'll indulge me john yeah. because i'm gonna try something i've never tried before Uh oh okay but i have to get this out of the way because i'm sure that i'm not the only one who feels this way but every single time that i hear Obviously, the grand, the grand niggas talk. I have Wallace Shawn in my head now permanently fused between Vanzini from The Princess Bride and the grand niggas. <laughs> so the opportunity for impersonation is endless. Oh. Right? So you have, you didn't profit? Inconceivable. <laughs> right? Or, never go up against the Ferengi when profit is on the line. <laughs> oh, but, bravo. Bravo. Wow. Oh, this this goes. This is twenty four seven in my brain right now. <laughs> oh no! Right. Well, we're we're all grateful that we're not there. Yeah. But that yeah. that's pretty awesome. <laughs> hey, uh, speaking of of your uh, your you're listening out for the linguistics and the the specific moments that we have here. A uh, question for Armin. And did you notice this uh, acumen or acumen? Because right. I, I say business acumen, I heard him, and I think he's talking about a spice in his spice cabinet. So, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, every time we do live reads, uh, I know that I butcher pretty much every other word or name or phrase. It, it <laughs> and, comes with the territory. Yeah. 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 And if, if and if Renee was just like, ah, cut it, print it, we, we got to move. Yeah, you know? pretty much. Yeah. Everyone knows what you mean, so, pretty you know, much. It's, uh, it's Ferengi. Uh, it's Ferengi spice, a cumin. Yeah, so, there, you know. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and look, and another, oh, I, I just love it. Uh, when we see Jeffrey Combs uh, here as Brunt for the first time, and he's disgusted by Zach and Mugi Ishka having this, and he says the perv Verted little love affair. <laughs> he just he chews every syllable. He adds syllables that aren't there oh. to that word, and ah, magnificent. He's so I'm, good. I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. You did that so well. That was awesome. <laughs> you. You keep working on a Wally Sean. Yeah. I'm going to work on my Jeffrey Combs. Yeah. And, and by the way, uh, uh, Tiny Ron. Shout out to Tiny Ron. Uh, Mayhardu. What what species is that? And he's the only one we've seen. And he's definitely the only one we've seen on Ferenginar. Like, how did he end up there, and why is he working for the Nagus? 
Well, okay. So, what was the name of uh, of Loxana Troy's uh, valet? Oh, Mister Hom. Yeah. So Mister Hom. So you yeah. have Mister Hom and you have Mister Mardu. They're they're kind of like I bet you they hang out kind of like in the valet's room. They have a like, club. What's up, man? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sure. All right. That makes sense. I was just wondering if it's like maybe some kind of play on Major Domo because you know the Major Domo takes care of the estates and the affairs of one who has that kind of authority. Like, I like that. I could see that being a writer thing. Like they, they, they're taking notes and they say, okay, uh, Zach has a major domo. What are we going to call him? Well, you just keep writing it as major domo. And then eventually you have to script it and you're just like, uh, make it just jumble up the, the syllables a little. It's, it's like the Oreo thing, right? Like someone's like, so what do you think? And someone has a donut and they're like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah my dough. That's great. Yeah. Let's write that down. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not a lot of food in this episode. I mean, the Ferengi stuff. Yeah. But we've talked about before, but Lita is selling Jumja sticks and blue jello and some wicker balls on her uh, little stand there. So what was she stabbing or, or trying to rearrange? What I, was that? I, I thought it was the, what was that the blue jello she was messing around with? I guess so. But she okay. kept, it looked like she kept like sticking it with some kind yeah. of like toothpick or something. Not, not a great looking spread. And, uh, you know, for, well, Rom, he doesn't even like Jumja sticks. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, there is a line in here that I, I thought was really interesting. Uh, personal greed has to reflect the public's greed. I mean, that's, okay, that, that's a line that, that could be maybe a lesson from this episode. I, I just want to park it here for now because it's funny on the surface. But at the same time, there is maybe a truth there that I'll get to later, how, how our leaders are sort of in a contract with us. But I just thought that was so, like, it was so per- perfectly Ferengi. And yet, I, I don't know, so perfectly human as well. And now, Mission Log listeners, the moment you've been waiting for. Now that's what I call Ferengi Love Songs Volume 1. Featuring all your favorites like, You Can In Fact Buy Me Love, by the Snuff Beatles. We'll get back to Ferengi Love Songs in just a moment, but first, a word from a couple of our sponsors this week. Okay, so it is November, the end of November, which means we can officially start watching Christmas movies. But what if you go to Netflix and discover your favorite Christmas movie isn't available? Get ready to have your mind blown. You can use ExpressVPN to watch any Netflix library in the world. All right. I, I got you covered, Norman. I got you. So I, I, I've been looking, I've been using ExpressVPN because you can set it for whatever location you want. And I've mentioned before that I've watched BBC and like I love uh, Darren Brown, those specials that you can only really catch if you're on a, uh, on a British uh, uh, internet connection, right? So ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located and you can choose from almost 100 countries. So just imagine now 100 countries multiplied by the available Netflix libraries and all of those places. There were some interesting suggestions. You might be able to guess which one I picked. Well, I went to UK Netflix Mm -hmm. to look up Doctor Who Season 5, A Christmas Carol. 
and it's there. It's per, you know available. At Matt Smith, Karen Gillian, good combination, and you're sort of putting the doctor in the role of all the ghosts <laughs> taking this alien character back into his own past and like, hey, maybe you're not such a terrible person after all after <laughs> I show you the error of your ways. So yeah, so you can do that too with ExpressVPN, not just Netflix. I mean, it works with any other streaming service. Uh, just uh, there are many. So uh, you name it, you can find it. And there are hundreds of VPNs out there but there is a reason that we use ExpressVPN to watch movies and shows, and that is because it is ridiculously fast. There's not any uh, long buffering, and you can always stream in HD. It works on all of your devices, too, including phones, tablets, media consoles, smart TVs. So you can use it to watch whatever you want on the go or on the big screen. If you visit our special link right now, expressvpn.com slash mission log, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and get your holiday fix at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Well, you know, we are almost close to holiday time, that special time of year where we all get together with family and friends under this wonderful blanket of warm Stress, because the <laughs> holidays are so stressful sometimes. They're not supposed to be. That's not the point, but they end up being that way with traveling, with obviously the dangers of traveling through COVID-19 areas. You want to make sure that you're going to be able to see your family if you can, when you can, and that all compiles under this new life of stress during the holidays. And we have a really good tool for you to use to try and alleviate that stress. Yeah, I got a plan for you because I've been using, I've been using the Theragun, uh, the handheld percussive therapy device that is designed to uh, release that deep muscle tension using scientifically calibrated combinations of depth, speed, and power, and uh, thankfully a quiet engine a quiet electric uh almost sounds like an electric toothbrush all right so uh stress is the key here norman you know it's not just the holiday season but there's well you got to work and then you're thinking about what you're going to be doing with and for your family during this time and then probably uh hopefully staying in shape during this and get out and get a walk go for a run all those things add up to stress, the stress it puts on your body, and you just need to be able to relax at night. And that's what I've been doing with the Theragon. Just a few minutes, and I use the app to guide me to say, well, hey, look, if you've been sitting at your desk too long, you need to relax those shoulders, which is what I need, use this. Or if you've been out for a walk, or you're about to go out for a run, try this to relax your, your feet and your uh, calves and your thighs so you're ready for your workout. So the all-new Gen 4 Theragun has a proprietary brushless motor so that it's quiet while you soothe your aching muscles with Theragun's signature power, amplitude, and effectiveness. Try Theragun for 30 days. There's no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4 with an OLED screen, personalized Theragun app, and the quiet and power you need, starting at only $199. Go to theragun.com slash mission log right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. 
That's theragun.com slash mission log. Theragun.com slash mission log. All right, Norman, comedy episode, but there might be a few uh, a few important points to hit here. Uh, not just, you know, oh, they're, they're making jokes, you know, there actually may be some, some deep discussion points. One thing that I wanted to start out with is just to say, you know, I've never been through this kind of thing. Uh, and when I, when I say this kind of thing, I mean Quark coming home to his mother and <laughs> discovering that the family dynamic now has changed because here's this new man in her life and not only is he just any person well he's the grand nagus and this complicates greatly uh his standing his uh his relationship not just to her but his understanding of business and what it means to be ferengi all his entire world gets turned upside down because of that now I can't specifically relate to that, but I can say that it's relatable because I can imagine that someone uh, new in the family just disrupts everything anyway. We're just layering on the complications when it comes to Quark. I guess it's kind of like, I mean, when you mentioned it uh, before in one of the ads, it's kind of like what happens during the holidays. You don't see your family for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are relationships that, change and dynamics and the family that change and when you finally step through that door you you try and remember what it was like being home the last time you were home and in this case for cork it's been some time so everything feels a little topsy-turvy it, it's like your world gets turned upside down but you don't really know why and that's why i guess i was like unsettled watching this episode i felt like i was like on some kind of mind-altering substance yeah. watching this episode right? <laughs> right yeah because i just felt like the story was weird yeah, right? you you had yeah. this bizarro land type of logic that seems to make sense in universe, mm-hmm. but you know I I've defended the Ferengi culture uh, several times um, in, in other episodes because you only you are only exposed to certain bits and pieces of it that you can counterpoint. Yeah, but when you see it all up front and concentrated and consistent and referenced in a certain way throughout the course of this episode you're like it doesn't really work the way that i wanted it to work the way that i believed it worked Mm. and not nearly as in depth or as well thought out as say like the cardassians in their family processes isn't that sort of that is the difficulty when you have all right, you go back to through the history of the Ferengi, and, and first there are these, you know, feral and fearsome enemies with the, the laser whips, and they're animalistic, and I believe in TNG, they even refer, Riker refers to them as eating their defeated. Yeah, so there's something terrifying about them. And then we soften them up a bit, particularly because, well, you've got Cork now as a lead character in the show. You can't just have him, well, you know, constantly eating the people who don't pay their bar bills. So there has to be a change there. And the more we have with Ferengi characters, you've got to give them depth. You've got to give them some nuance and more facets to the characters. So then you're developing a whole culture. And I think clearly that was not the intention when the Ferengi were introduced. So now it's like we're we're having to backtrack. I I won't say retcon because we're not trying to create a consistency there necessarily, but we are having to sort of backtrack and go like, okay, if we keep layering on these odd aspects to Ferengi culture, 
how much more of this can we really accept as being realistic and accept mm-hmm. as being, as you say here, in universe, you know, before like everybody in the Federation is just like, yeah, look, we're, we're going to stay far away <laughs> because this is not good. Mm-hmm. There is a, a, another thing that I, I want to get into here about this. I, I think this is something maybe relatable, maybe a little more interesting than just the family drama, the family dynamic that's happening. And that is the political dynamic going on on Ferenginar. Um Brunt says to Quark when he, when he sort of calls him out for his mother's relationship with Zack, we must spare the Nagus even a hint of public disgrace. And we've seen this now. We've seen this with Brunt. Uh, typifying this Ferengi fundamentalist streak, you know, and and Brunt is the most fundamental of them all, the the by-the-rules guy, the the by-the-book guy. And I I think what is so interesting to me about this aspect of this episode, and, you know, for, again, for a light episode, there are interesting aspects here, is the idea of protecting the Nagus because of what it would do to Ferengi society if the truth were known. Now, of course, we know that Brunt has his own underhanded motivation, but this line of logic wouldn't work with Ferengi if he wasn't also just bought into the idea. So we we know that there is an ulterior motive for Brunt, but, but bear with me for a moment. I kept thinking, you know, we've had leaders all over the world who have not at some times been at their best. Or ever. Or ever, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I'm I'm speaking very generically here, (laughs) you know. Uh, But, you know, psychologically, emotionally, physically, whatever it is, you know. And and partly their staffs and supporters will hide it in order to keep them in power and not let their citizens lose their trust, lose their belief in that leader. And, And also citizens will sort of buy into the belief that their leaders are okay just for the good of the country you know it's what it's what brunt is playing with in uh quark's loyalty here and in this episode we actually we see the good side of just letting it be that the nagus is losing his mind and is not really, truly capable of uh, being the leader of this entire world. It's a better alternative than somebody like Brunt taking over, for sure, but it also shows that power is just something that we allow people to have, and and that sometimes the lie is more beneficial than the truth. I don't know if that's necessarily a good message to take away from this, but that's kind of what I was getting at with that line. Personal greed has to reflect the public's greed. So you can re- replace greed with whatever word you want to. But the idea here is, is leaning into this that the person in power is only as good in that power, is only as solid in that power because the public is allowing that power to take place. The public is allowing, it's that contract that we have with that leader to say like, oh, okay, well, yeah, you might be doing something crazy, uh, but enough people here will support you. Enough people here will just want to keep that going because we want to believe that our leaders are competent and we want to believe that their decisions are good, 
even if somewhere deep down we know they're not. Well, I mean, this is uh, the monoculture of monocultures, I think, maybe in Star Trek, right? Because oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything, is, is, everything is designed to do one thing, to make them profit. Every yeah. decision is is created, or every decision is weighed and measured, and and extrapolated, and to make the most amount and maximize their profits. So when you have somebody like the Nagus uh, suffering, um, you know these small details, any any slip in his stability causes the markets to fall, and that's very real time. Though there's any st- instability mm-hmm. in world leaders or world politics. Or the fabric of how relationships work, you know, geopolitically, the markets start to uh, they, they they start to embrace those changes, and then you know, investors start to get antsy, and then the numbers start to tip, yeah. or rise, or fall, or just really accelerate, or really plummet. I I see that exactly what's being played out here with yep. Nick's, and Brunt knows that too. So Brunt's like, you know what? For all intents and purposes, yeah, I want to be the Nagus, but also for all intents and purposes. If the market goes down, my profits go down. So he's self-serving in two ways, yeah. which makes him yeah. the uber Ferengi because he's like, hey, I want my profits and my cake and I want to eat it all. <laughs> so I need to make everything, you know, uh, you know, keep going the way it's going until I can seamlessly maneuver myself into power, which I thought he did uh, pretty interestingly because oh, yeah. it's like now, you know, I can now, uh, I can get my, I can get my licks in on Quark because I just don't like you, Quark. Yes, yes, <laughs> right. You right. know, and, and um, like I said, he, he kind of, uh, uh, you know, he did the villain thing and he says, I'm going to tell you all of my plans because you can't stop me now, right? I'm going to, uh, oh, what's, yeah. what's the word I used earlier on? I'm going to monologue my plans as most villains do. Yeah, right, right. right. But yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting thing how this type of the model culture, like anything, any instability of a leader, um, fictionalized or otherwise, is literally the pulse of the culture. But I like how you describe the real world impact on the markets because I, I cannot, by any stretch of the imagination, say that I'm an expert on investing at all. But I, I do have some investment, so I pay some attention to what's happening with certain companies and, and in the stock market in general. Um, and of course, the best advice is just like leave it alone and never look. But <laughs> you know, but what you said has so much truth to it that those markets rise and fall because of the the construct of our belief in that market you know it, yes companies sometimes do well and companies sometimes do poorly and then that has a direct reflect uh, reflection on how they're performing in the market but so much of the time there are outside forces that get investors spooked and then they run away and then that has this domino effect on the rest of the market or the opposite happens and it artificially inflates the market because suddenly people just feel like, oh, well, I feel much more confident now. So investments happen. And yes, there are real world correlations, but there is a huge chunk of that that we have to understand is this based on the whims of uh, of how those traders are behaving that day or over you know maybe a longer period of time that week or that month. It's uh, it, it really relies on the the trust that people have in that system, the belief that it is what it says it is. And, and I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but mm-hmm. 
Think about the two influences that were affecting the Negus at this time, either positively or negatively. You had Brunt, who was trying to maneuver himself into the Negus position, but he didn't really have the the savvy to be able to to affect the market the way that they wanted to um, assume the Grand Negus would always have that kind of influence over, especially mm-hmm. the the Frankie market and 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 his his people. Yeah. But Ishka did know. For all that time that they were together, Ishka knew how to maneuver the market through the Nagus because she knew what was right for the market. And I will touch on that in a second. Okay, very good. And let's talk about Ferengi prenups. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I appreciate a, a story that says, like, well, you just need love. Uh, you actually do need more than love though sometimes you know uh-huh. even in this world of the future where their their basic needs are maybe taken care of like uh food if you've got a replicator and shelter if you happen to live on a nice spacious uh station where you can find plenty of two bedroom uh apartments but look all prenups are terrible all prenups are rough divorce is probably even worse i think can't speak from experience there but there are some of the there's some of this B plot though that I do want to pick apart because a good amount of it just rubbed me the wrong way. Something about that short conversation between Kira and Lita mm-hmm. just didn't sit well with me. It was very cliche. We know what is happening in that scene. Lita is just sort of expressing all of her frustrations he drives me nuts uh, he loves latinum more than me and kira's saying nope no he doesn't no he doesn't and she's saying you know, lita's saying she doesn't love him anymore kira's like yeah you do yeah you do and, and like deep down of course we know that lita has feelings for rom of course at the same time i feel like i wanted at least some more realistic scene buried in there somewhere like like a a friend who would just do more than essentially say oh you'll be fine you're really like just get back in there you love each other like somebody actually needs to address lita's concerns here we get we get a more realistic scene between o'brien and rom with o'brien saying like hey don't be a jerk you you need to treat her respectfully and follow what your your real passions are here but i feel like lita is really getting the raw end of the deal here where nobody's saying like hey here's how you can actually talk this through you know scenes like that and for for some of the scenes that were in this episode which also made me a little unsettled with this episode is that i felt like this was the episode of contractually obligated appearances yeah Yep. Because that scene with Kira really was, it's just, it could have been anyone who needed to be to fill that contract for the day. It could have been Terry. It could mm-hmm. have been, heck, it could have been Andrew, you know, for yeah. if you needed to slip in a Garrick scene in there. Yep. Because all you needed was somebody to say those lines. Kira had no investment in Lita in right. that scene. I don't think I've, I don't even remember if they ever had a conversation before this. <laughs> right. Certainly right? not I about mean, Rom. Yeah. Right. And the only thing that they have in common together is that they're both Bajoran women. Yeah. So obviously they would talk to each other, yeah. I guess. Right. Yeah. I mean, even the whole thing with like Cisco and Worf and talking about General Martok and dropping his attache or whoever like off the promenade. It's like mm-hmm. it just seemed weird. Like, you yeah. know, it just seemed okay, let's throw this scene in because they have to be in the scene. They get yeah. their minimum X amount of words in and then right. that's it. 
Right. And that's as far as that reference goes. Now, you know, I'm sure listeners will be like, yeah, but yeah, but it's still a good scene. I'm like, I'm not saying it's not a good scene. It's just that it, it just seems forced. And there's a lot of that going on in this episode. I, I will say it's not a good scene. <laughs> I will, I will gladly say it's not a good scene. Well, they're just weird. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're just, they're just throwaways. And, and mm-hmm. if that's where I, well, I don't want to, I don't want to steal my own thunder. So I'll just, we'll get there. We'll get there. Let, <laughs> let's, before we get there, let, let's talk a little bit about Quark here. Uh, yeah. I, I did find it very amusing that being around humans too long, he got exposed to their ethics. <laughs> I just that, yeah yeah we're we're definitely seeing this change in quark i mean gosh he he learned that uh murdering 28 million people is wrong so yeah. good for you quark and now he's learning that there are certain ethical principles to live by too technically he has now the root beer on tap at quarks you know because he's been i i still think that's one of the best analogies written about uh the federation in you know, it in really Deep Space is. Nine, the Rupert yeah. analogy, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that that's kind of like what's going on here is that he's been surrounded by this bubbly frothiness of optimism and positivity and, and, and do-gooderness that he can't help but do it himself because it's, it, it, it's giving him a, a, a conscience, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, oh my God, no. <laughs> so, yeah. so I, I want to ask this to you, John, and obviously mm. this is probably going to be something that sits in varying degrees with the listeners, but it's something that really, really bothers me about this episode and about the Frankie cultural, uh, the culture at large. Mm. And I know that there'll probably be response to this is like, you know, why is this becoming such a, another one of those anti-sexist uh, episodes? Because mm-hmm. what anti-sexism is bad because mm. it's, that's what it's supposed to be, right? You know, like right, the sexism right. in this episode, the misogyny is, is just unbelievable. Yeah. But all that being said, I'm trying to figure out what the writers in this episode were trying to convey by the, just the sheer brute force of the Ferengi culture being referenced in this episode. Case in point, and it starts off with Ishka. You disapprove of me, Quark. Now, this is his own mother talking to him. You disapprove of me, Quark. You always have. Moogie, stop wearing clothes. Ick. Mm. Moogie, start earn, stop earning profit. You have stopped, haven't you? I mean, earning profit. Wearing clothes is bad enough, but profit. I mean, okay, yeah. I get it. The reinforcement of those cultural touchstones, though, is, you know, that's, that's you know, a very discussable point, obviously. But yeah, more, more so than this, and I want to go all the way back to season two, because I did my reference on this. I'm going mm-hmm. all the way back to season two, rules of acquisition. Pell, the, the Ferengi, um, I guess that she was a servant in Quark's bar, Mm-hmm. And she was hiding as a uh, a male because obviously females aren't allowed to work. They're not allowed to make profit. They're not allowed to trade. They're not allowed to do anything that men are allowed to do in the Ferengi culture. Yeah. But like she was, I felt like she was kind of like the progenitor for Ishka because she fought for Ferengi female rights. She believes that Ferengi females are capable of making profits as well or even better than Ferengi males wearing clothes, speaking their minds in public. So I guess the big question is what exactly are we dealing with here? in total when it comes to seeing these Ferengi female archetypes in Deep Space Nine. Why are they introduced in these stories if we are never to see examples change the scope of their culture at large? It it puzzles me as to why Ferengi women are so uniquely defined by such blatant aspects of sexism, misogyny, objectification, subversion, without ever really seeing any momentum in the narrative as it applies to the overall Ferengi culture. Yes, there's Rom, 
mm-hmm. but the example does not make the or break the rule. And even Rom is quote unquote unferengi as far as many who know him are concerned, like the chief yeah. and Dax said. So why introduce even the opportunity for Ferengi women to make change, even when they have the ear of the Nagus, when there's absolutely no change being made or even hinted to? Right. Yeah, see, that that's exactly it. And again, look, you know, listeners, of course, there's two more seasons of DS9 coming. We will see Moogie again. Let's focus on where we are right now because we are nearing the end of season five, you know, five full seasons of DS9. And we're always asking ourselves uh, of each other here on Mission Log, like, why did they choose to tell this story this time? Mm-hmm. You know, what what is it they're hoping to get across with this? And the problem that I'm seeing here is the problem that you're seeing, which is, okay, we will set up this complex culture and we will give the Ferengi all these terrible attributes, <laughs> you know, that serve uh, a stark contrast uh, from what we hope are the better ideals of Starfleet slash the Federation. But the problem is all we're doing is just saying like, wow, look at that. That's terrible. Look how terrible it is. They continue to be terrible to each other. As opposed to, and I'll make this very unfair comparison here because that's not what our show is about, but as opposed to something like, you know, pick any episode of Next Gen where then you sort of then turn the camera back around on our idealized Starfleet slash Federation representatives who either able to make a positive influence on this culture that we can say, wow, they've, they've, they've really gotten it wrong here. They're really not treating each other with the respect that we would hope that they would, or at least are presenting a better example to each other that we can hold up as a, uh, as a comparison to this. But instead, now we're just sort of invested in the idea of like, oh, the Fringi do all these terrible things. Let's go spend an hour with them being terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and is that a good use of our time on DS9 or in Star Trek in general? And to your point, and I'm sure to many of our listeners' points, yes, we, we've seen growth in Quark. We've seen growth in Rom. But then you take Quark and you throw him into an episode like this. And yeah, he might say that he's developed a conscience about things. But where is the actual growth where he can see the injustices around him. When when will he have had enough of that root beer mm-hmm. to realize like, oh, there is actually something systemic here that isn't right that maybe could change. Much like and much like Rom. Rom gave up everything. He gave up everything that a Ferengi holds dearest, profit. Yeah. Right? Because he wanted something better for himself. So in many ways he drank the root beer. He drank all of it right down to the dregs. And he became something that he's all, I mean, that's why I love Rom. Rom always chooses what's best for him as not just Rom, but as a, just a person, just a person mm-hmm. who wants to live a good life. And I, I like the dichotomy between those two characters. I, I just, I, also, I love Rom. If you call today, you also get now that's what I call Ferengi power balance, including air supplies I'm all out of funds, and many more.
You know, Norman, you'd think that people would have had enough of Ferengi love songs. I, I look around me and I see it isn't so. Or, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well played, sir. <laughs> uh, or maybe maybe we have had enough of Ferengi love songs. I think maybe we've hinted and teased enough at our, our summation of this episode. But uh, we'll get into it here and I'll, I'll pose it to you first. Uh, does the episode hold up? And then we'll get into our morals, meanings, messages. What did you think? Well. First of all, I apologize to computer if John stole any of your ideas for lines because that's that wasn't me. That was him. The computer so, doesn't care sorry, about computer. me. The computer, the computer will do whatever the computer wants to do. So uh, yeah. this is true. Yeah. This is true. You know, I'm I'm trying to phrase this, and and I after after watching this episode, I'll be honest. I texted John and I said, I don't know, man. You know, I I just I don't know where this is going. I don't know where I'm going to land at the end of this episode. So. In full transparency and honesty to the listeners, this is how I landed. And rarely, and I mean rarely, rarely does an episode of Star Trek or even TV in general just fail to hit the mark for me. This episode is one of those rare occasions. And I know that a lot of listeners are probably going to like reel back on their heels, but I'm going to say that probably even more than Let He Is Without mm. Sin. Wow. And here's okay. why. Here's why. Over the last five years, I, I've really come to enjoy Cork and Rom a lot. And I've mentioned that many times. I just mentioned that in the earlier segment. As they have evolved as characters, and especially Cork, because he was so brilliant, Armin and Cork, they're so brilliant in business as usual. At the end of that, the statement or the moral quandary that he was able to get through between the 28 million people or sacrificing himself was fantastic to watch. But then... I'd look at this episode and the reason why I have a problem with this episode, it's not about the acting necessarily. And it's not, not even necessarily about kind of like the choppy plot. What it is, is that what is the narrative journey of these characters after an episode like this, especially Quark mm -hmm. Rom Rom's journey was different, but especially Quark because I don't understand the motivation. I don't understand where Quark is coming from after business as usual, right? I don't understand why a character that I want to embrace who embodies a culture that is so blatantly designed to elicit the kind of response you would want to get by being morally and intellectually insulting through the use of rampant sexism and capitalism. Mm -hmm. So in rooting for Cork to win, quote unquote, in a sense, I'm rooting for his culture to win because by extension, those are his motivations. But conversely, in the same way I'm rooting for Rom to win because Rom is doing the exact opposite of what Quark is doing. Rom is growing through sacrifice. So what am I being led to believe here? Am I rooting for Rom and his culture to win? Or, you know, um, I'm sorry, for Quark. But if the Ferengi culture wins... Then, by extension, Lita lives a life of servitude and signing the WPP and also has to suffer through, say, what Ishka suffers through. So I don't know where I'm emotionally settling because it's so confusing. Yeah. Also, what's more confusing is that the timing of the episode feels off to me. So why this kind of story? Why now? Right? So what does this story do to Quark's character development that business as usual didn't address? I, I just didn't get the reason for this episode aside from being padding to fill out a 26-episode long season. Yeah. 
Um, I, you know, I, I'm mostly right there with you. Uh, I would say that the only difference for me is that let he who is without sin is a, that is an episode that I was angry. I disliked it so much. Like, like my, my <laughs> dislike just bubbled over into like, no, not just this is not enjoyable, but, oh, I, I want to throttle the people who are on screen here. Um, this one, I, I just felt like, uh, okay, it had some funny moments, but it's it's more a Star Trek doing this kind of like romantic farce, which it has done better in the past. Uh, it relies solely on the strengths of Armin as Quark, and I can't really say that I've developed more of a love for Zek over the years, but I still, look, I love Wally Shawn, but I, I feel like they just sort of made him even more cartoonish here. And um, mm. I know I'm not totally off base just because, you know, having read what uh, Ira and, uh, well, particularly Ira said about this, like they were going for screwball comedy. They're going for uh, what Howard Hawks did back in the 30s. And what they were getting scene by scene, okay, they would nail the joke. But then when you put it all together, it just turned into this cartoonish comedic mess. It wasn't something that had a real focus or it had a real raison d'etre. As for mm -hmm. the Lita and Rom story, I really do like them together. And I love the way that we've grown Rom over the years. I just wish we weren't telling their story again in a series of cliches where he has to make the move. She has to pin him down. He's kind of an idiot who has to be kept in line. Lita should have uh, a little stronger presence here and just be able to decide exactly what's best for her rather than constantly waiting for Rom to come around. I get that's the dynamic they wrote. I wanted to see something a bit more progressive out of this. It's the 24th century. It's Deep Space Nine. Yeah, it's TV in the 90s, but okay, it's TV in the late 90s. Come on, these are smart people writing these episodes. Um I gotta say, I miss Andrea Martin as Moogie, but I know Cecily Adams will totally grow on me. I think she makes a really strong presence here, and I look forward to seeing more of her in that role. Um, and I really, really hope that Moogie is the one who can push Ferengi society forward a bit, because Lord knows they need it. Um, so as far as an episode, I'm with you, Norman. I, I do not love this Um I just think I will give it more of a pass than I will let he who is without sin. That, that will just get my anger up. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about morals, meanings, messages. I mean, I, I think we found interesting discussion topics, but I clearly this is not an episode that is really trying to hammer you with morals, meanings, messages. I, I'll say right off the bat, uh, something that we can all learn from Zach, please download and use a good password manager app. Uh, because, Wait. yeah, you're going to need it now. You're going to need it in the 24th century. I think the other thing that we're exploring here is this idea that I talked about in the last segment, that the emperor really has no clothes. And no, I'm not talking about 
the Ferengi women and the woman who is pulling the strings behind the scenes. But the Emperor Zek has no clothes. Zek is someone who is in power because he has a reputation and because he has been protected and everyone is in on it. I think transparency is a much more valuable trait to have. And I don't mean the transparency of not having any clothes. And then finally, for me, uh, rule of acquisition number 299, Latinum lasts longer than lust. Sure. I, you know, may, okay, maybe literally true, but Rom learns a more important, dare I say, human lesson here, which is that the value in our lives comes from the people in it. So I think we mm-hmm. are all meant to accept and respect the decision that he makes, which is uh, the right decision. Uh, what else, Norman? What, what am I missing here from my little list? Well, I mean, I, I love what you've said so far. I mean, the download and go to use password manager app is funny. I was thinking of Spaceballs and President Scrooge. It's like, amazing. I can't believe he has the same combination on my luggage. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's a comedy of errors yeah. Yeah. As, as this episode goes. I mean, okay, if they're going for Screwball comedy, I don't remember comedy like that in the 90s mm-hmm. being defined this way as Screwballs. So... Uh, points for the attempt, I guess. I'm not a writer, so I'm not going to, even though I have a writer's hat uh, in in some form or another, (laughs) I've mentioned that before. But I I do think that it's it's hard to to try and second guess what writers did with their motivations, what, 25-ish years ago? Because I don't know what the humor, I don't know what the humor scene was like, or don't remember what it was like in like 1997, 98, or what the inclusion level was like, because it's not the way that it is now. So the sexist type of jokes probably landed a little bit better. I'm not forgiving that. I'm just saying that they're, they landed probably a little bit better and probably a little bit more snickered at, you know, behind closed doors than say now. Times were different back then. I understand that. But it still doesn't really kind of settle with me in in that sense. But I know that the rules of acquisition have been referenced many, many times throughout the course of, of the Frankic culture, and, and you did too. And I, and I think that I'm just going to continue that tradition with how I think morals landed mm-hmm. here. So say when it comes to Mugi's relationship with Zeki. So rule number six, never allow family to stand in the way of opportunity, right? Because who was using who in this, in this scenario, Right, <laughs> right. When you, have, when you really look yeah. at it, it's there. Yeah. You know who is really using yeah. who. Uh, when it comes to Rom and Lita, rule number fourteen: keep your family close, keep your Latinum closer. Mm. But Rom grew mm. from that, which was a good point yep. for Rom, a, a good moment yep. for Rom. Uh, when it comes to Cork and Brunt, rule number seventeen: a contract is a contract is a contract, but only between Ferengi, which has got him in this trouble in the first right. place. Right. When it, when it comes to Quark and Moogie, rule number 73, if it gets you profit, sell your own mother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And these are out they there. Are, these exist, are, yeah. right? So I, I know that they're more farcical than not, but there's a very dark and underlying veil of, of the truth and wisdom in each one of these rules of acquisition. And I think that it's, it's interesting how they can apply because when I read the lists of the rules of acquisition— they really do reflect more of an honest look at uh, the the underpinnings of of human motivations more so than people I think would like to admit or think. And I think that's what makes the Ferengi culture fascinating. It's just that the way that they brought it to bear here with such a, a hammer swing approach loses a lot in the subtlety of what the machinations could have been. Yeah. 
as opposed to just hammering home the fact that women can't do anything and men can do everything, but men are inept and women actually succeed <sighs> behind the scenes. All I can say is please let Ferengi culture change at some point. I got my fingers crossed for those, you know, lovable, terrible, lobe-headed orange aliens. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam! And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Soldiers of the Empire. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Send check or money order to Ferengi Love Songs, Care of Deep Space Nine Records, Colorado Springs, Colorado. And transmission. You want me to leave you where I found you? Unemployed at Quark's Bar! Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network